You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 2, Episode 8. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. I am very pleased to be able to look out the window today and see no snow. I'm recording this on April the 12th, 2017, and I have been able to ride my bike to the office the last little while here. As uh, many of you are now probably aware, um... Holthy Tillman is disbanded and my partner has gone his way and I've gone mine and and I decided to join with uh, a very well-respected firm here in Alberta, uh, Stringham LLP. They've got offices across the province and have just been just so good to me. Um, it's quite amazing when when you change uh, when you change locations of practice in, in you know as a lawyer there's always a little bit of trepidation that you know maybe it's not going to be quite as good as I hoped it would be but I can tell you it's been just amazing it's been a wonderful transition I've got a lot more time now to be able to spend doing the things that I love there's there's even a wonderful uh, um, uh, marketing uh, person here within the office uh, Justine who has been helping me with uh, a number of different initiatives. Uh, if you go to the uh, Stringham LLP website, <laughs> you'll see that immigration has not been too great for my waistline the last little bit. And oh my goodness, they could not have taken a worse picture of me. <laughs> so I told them, give me a few months. I'm going to go on a weight loss program and try and trim down so that uh, I don't look so awful. But yeah, that picture must rank up as one of the worst ever taken of me. But hey, um, beauty is not, uh, it's, it's, it's more than skin deep or whatever <laughs> that phrase is. I don't know. Anyways, hopefully by the time I get around to the national uh, conference that's coming up in, in Toronto in, uh, in June, I'll have been able to shed a few pounds and, and not, uh, feel so, uh, well, just so fat. So we'll leave it at that. You guys can have a laugh about that. Hey, one tip though, ride a bike. That's, that's the best option that I can find so far. Um, with the new change in office locations, my old office was really close to my house. It was about a five minute walk. So it didn't really lend itself nicely to long bike rides for exercise. But now if anyone is familiar with Lethbridge, Alberta, uh, my house is on the West side and the new office is downtown Lethbridge. So I get to go up and down the, what we call whoop up drive, which is, um, a big steep coulee and it's a nice big ride. And, Yes, I am happy to report that I'm about uh, 14 pounds lighter than when that ugly picture was taken for the firm website. Anyways, so uh, I thought I'd give you a little comic relief. Uh, As I've always said on this podcast, it's mine. I can pretty much say whatever I want. And uh, so hopefully (laughs) those of you that are really professional are uh, not entirely turned off of the podcast at this stage. I'll avoid the discussion of my waistline and and uh, my attempts to um, shorten a few notches on my belt and uh, introduce 
the topic for this podcast, which is medical inadmissibility. And I could not do that without first having an opportunity to bring Mario Bellissimo on, the guru of medical inadmissibility in the context of, of Canadian immigration, to join me. And we've kind of danced around a little bit trying to, to find a time that would work. And uh, I was finally able to connect with him. The, the connection sometimes with, with guests isn't always good, but it was perfect with Mario. The audio quality of the interview is, is awesome. And when the audio quality is great, then the content just shines through. And Mario went out of his way to demystify one of the more complicated areas of immigration law that we can face. And uh, he took some time to give us about five key issues or, or key things to think about uh, to help prevent um, a medical a finding of medical inadmissibility. So these are things that you can contemplate and pay attention to, and, and they will help you uh, in your effort to um, respond to these fairness letters that come back from the government saying, we think you're medically inadmissible for these reasons. You have 60 days to tell us why not. And so Mario jumped right in there, gave a lot of good practical advice. Um, but the one message that, that permeates through this whole podcast, aside from the fact that Mario is pretty awesome, um, is is that you really don't want to go into this if you are uh, an unrepresented uh, applicant. You do not want to go into this without engaging counsel. And, um, you know, obviously within the podcast, I like to promote the guests that come on. And that's one of the purposes of, of doing it is to showcase just the awesome immigration lawyers and, and, and consultants out there that are doing it the right way. And Mario most definitely is. Um, so the, the, the one... Uh, piece of advice that I want you to take away from here is that you want to hire uh, uh, someone to help you when you're faced with these issues. And and by all means, Mario Bellissimo would be number one or right at the top of my list. Let's face it, he writes the book on the topic. So uh, with without um, any further ado, and uh, me talking about uh, embarrassing things and that are probably far too personal for a Canadian immigration podcast, we better get to this interview with Mario. So without further ado... Uh, let's get to it right now. All right. Well, I am here with Mario Bellissimo. Um, we've been, uh, dancing around for a little while trying to find a time that works. We had one failed pre-attempt at recording this, this podcast, but now we are set and we've got some awesome audio that we are going to rock during this podcast. Uh, Mario, welcome to, uh, welcome to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to uh, join you. Excellent. Well, Mario Bellissimo probably doesn't need much of an introduction. He is, uh, he's one of the gurus across the country, uh, a name that many of us uh, who practice in the industry of immigration law, whether you're a, a lawyer or a consultant or otherwise government officer, um, Mario has established himself as, as just really one of the, the top practitioners in the country. And he has graciously agreed to share some time with us to talk about an issue that is very, very complicating, very, very heart-wrenching at times. And, and one of the, the areas that I think most of us immigration lawyers, uh, unless you're doing a lot of it, it's something that you want to refer to someone who's, who's really good. And so uh, that topic is, is medical inadmissibility in, in the context of, of immigration. So um, yeah, Mary, we're really happy to have you have you join us. Thank you. And um, I always have time to talk about medical uh, inadmissibility. As you said, it's an issue that's near and dear to my heart. 
Wonderful. Well, let's start off uh, with sharing just a little bit of background on you. Although, like I said, most people, if uh, you know, they can just suit, uh, search uh, Blissimo Immigration and uh, find hordes of information all over uh, with the, the various things that you're involved with. Um, Mario graduated from Osgood Law School, um, Osgood Hall Law School. He's a certified specialist in citizenship and immigration law and pro- refugee protection. And his practice, obviously is focused on litigation and immigration inadmissibility. Um, you know, Mario has appeared before all levels of immigration tribunals and courts, including the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, how did you end up there? What was the, uh, have you had a couple cases that have taken you to the Supreme Court? Well, not surprisingly, it was a medical inadmissibility case. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was the uh, the famous Hillowitz case oh, uh, in yes. 2005, which yes. was a seven-year uh, seven battle uh, th- to proceed through the various levels of court with the late, great Cecil Rotenberg, who was my mm-hmm. mentor and, and introduced me to uh, this fascinating area of law. And um, yeah, I can't believe it's already 12 years since that since that decision. And then there were a number that followed after that Sapru and Calaco and Lawrence and all of these continued to refine um, the findings of the Supreme Court of Canada, which which it was a game changer. I think it it changed the way. uh, Immigration medical cases were dealt with in Canada, you know, no system is perfect, but it eliminated a lot of the social handicapping and the generic assessments. So it's to this date, it's the uh, pinnacle of my career for sure. Very cool. Yeah, that decision was is uh, pretty significant, and and pretty much everyone that practices in this area is familiar with it. Um, if you could give a, a simple little um, uh, one-liner or rule of law that you pull out of that case, that's the the the, the key changer for people who are unfamiliar with it, or maybe there's uh, individuals that are not lawyers who are listening to the podcast. What did Hillowitz accomplish? So Hillowitz, and I should mention DeJong, which was also part of that case, what really what it really boils down to is that when someone comes before an immigration official with a medical condition or issue, even something as simple as a knee replacement, that they are assessed individually. So it's not just assumed that everyone who has cancer, or everyone who needs a knee replacement are going to be the same costs, uh, raise the same issues so that they would be individually assessed. And that, of course, is, the, the in our opinion, the most fair way to proceed because it ensures that individuals are not discriminated against or are not grouped together. For example, a stage one cancer is a very different situation than a stage four cancer. Um, and ultimately, to prepare you know, it still protects our, our very uh, finite resource base here in Canada. So uh, that was a, a wonderful uh, legal compromise. And, and that's really what changed the world for people. Because before that, you presented with a certain condition and it was categorical exclusion. It's done deal. Hmm. Wow. Well, that's that's awesome. Um, Mario has served as the past chair of our Canadian Bar Association's National Immigration Law Section. And and uh, when when did you wrap that up, Mario? That was a couple of years now, I guess. Yeah, it's about four years ago now that wow. I, uh, I served as chair. So, yeah, time really moves. It sure does. And, you know, that, that uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but that position is is just unbelievably demanding. And, 
you know, this is not something that individuals uh, receive this nice healthy stipend to supplement all of the time they're taking away from their practices. But, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, notwithstanding that coming to an end, Mario uh, has continued to be extremely active with the Canadian Bar Association, you know, even to this day serving uh, on multiple stakeholder committees um, involving all aspects of immigration, whether it's IRCC itself, the CBSA, Service Canada, federal courts, and the list goes on and on. And um, in addition to uh, Mario's work with the Professional Association, the Canadian Bar Association, um, we were talking a little bit earlier about a, a pro bono initiative that his firm has taken off, uh, taken on, which fits with our topic today, and that's uh, assisting um, the Sick Kids Hospital with with through Pro Bono Ontario with their immigration matters. Mario, you've got to share a little bit about that. Well, it's been an incredible experience, Mark. Um, yeah, I was exposed to this initially through a program at the Kids Hospital in Toronto called Cardiac Kids. These are number, you know, children that are facing serious heart issues. And what didn't dawn on me at the time when I was first introduced to it is that some of these individuals' uh, conditions were discovered or developed when they were just visiting Canada, and all of a sudden. You have families that are dealing with these devastating medical findings, but then also have to deal with immigration status issues and coverage and access to the very life-saving medical services that they require. And uh, it just became such a fascinating area to uh, become involved with. And I'll I'll give you a brief example. We had a recent case of of a seven-year-old girl that came to Canada, um, and when visiting, they discovered um, that um, she had all of a sudden developed a very serious kidney um, disorder and uh, really required treatment that, if you could believe it, because it didn't have the type of outcomes that um, would be financially feasible in her country of origin, they did not provide this life-saving medical service to this child. So we had to mobilize very quickly to try to ensure that she had access, she had coverage, and she wasn't sent back to her country where she would face certain death. And I can tell you we were successful in obtaining protected person status for her because it really wasn't about medical services. The services were available. The government just made a choice not to provide them because the medical outcomes weren't as high as they would want. They made the choice that they would spend their money elsewhere. And thankfully, that child remains under uh, our protection here in Canada and has received the treatment she needs and is and is um, doing much better. But this is an individual that in essence, we saved. And clearly, this family were only coming here as visitors. They had a well-established life back home. They did not intend for Canada to be their home. But this treatment will continue on for six to seven to eight years. So it wasn't something that could just be done and away you go. We had to ensure that this child received protection. And, and the credit to you know, the uh, Refugee Protection Division for seeing this as an example of a very nuanced case. And uh, for all those involved, including at Sick Kids, the support the the doctors and nurses and their legal team gave us, so it was just a an incredibly rewarding experience. 
Wow, that that is awesome. You know, I can see how, you know, individuals who are fortunate enough to be in, uh, you know, in Toronto, in that geographic area when these bad things happen, what a blessing it is to have uh, you and your firm there to, you know, if, if needed. I wonder, you know, it's hard not to think about all the other places across the country, you know, and um, whenever I have guests come on these uh, to, to join me on the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Mario, I always get these ideas and I'm thinking in my in, in my head, well, who's helping the Calgary Sick Kids Hospital? Guaranteed, there's going to be, you know, kids in, in you know, circumstances like that. What, you know, what's happening in Vancouver? What's happening in these other, uh, you know, geographic uh, regions in Canada that, that may or may not have access to you know, the, the assistance and the quality representation that, um, that you and your, your firm are able to provide. Do you know of anyone else that does similar things across the country? Um, uh, there are a few firms, but I don't really know of anyone mm-hmm. that does the pro bono work. And I don't know if part of it is that a number of these cases do end up Toronto bound because of the complexity. Yes. Um, so, but I think you raise a very good point and it's a good uh, call to action to our colleagues, Mark, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, think about that in, in, in our various cities across Canada. I mean, the reality is it's through the Canadian Bar Association that I, you know, I met you and many of the people I I know and the incredibly committed colleagues we have across Canada, I'm sure there would be individuals that would step up and, and do that. Yeah. And we see that all the time. You know, you think of how everyone mobilized so quickly with the, you know, the the, the, the whole executive order issue that, that occurred uh, with uh, with President Trump and, and how lawyers gave their time to, to go to the, the airports and help assist people on a completely pro bono basis, you know, even, in, you know, with, with uh, the issues they were experiencing being barred from the U.S. So, yeah, this is, this, it's, it's a great time to be an immigration lawyer, no doubt about it. Uh, now, just to kind of wrap up a little bit um, uh, regarding some of the other things that you're involved with, uh, you also act on a pro bono basis as a National Immigration Law and Policy Advisor for Costi Immigration Resettlement Services. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? So Costi really deals with integration, and, and as you know, Mark, full well that um, – our, you know, our focus is on either obtaining the status for individuals who are already here and then uh, or try and obtain status for those that are that are Canada bound. But once that status is obtained, that's really, you know, half the battle. The other half the, of the battle is the integration, um, everything from, you know, banking to understanding mm-hmm. uh, how the system operates here. And that's where Costi steps in. They, they assist with, uh, you know, searching out and assisting potentially with employment issues, a resume prep. Uh, language augmentation where needed and and it's an incredible area to again be part of because you're really able to help people on a on a really a mass basis and some of the policy uh, that we develop and some of the approaches and the training we do with the staff helps them really ensure that these individuals are integrating or when there are status issues that the right immigration professionals can help them as well so again it's uh, something that I've been doing for many many years years and um, uh, is very satisfying as well. Excellent. Um, I think the listeners, uh, you know, will be very familiar with the fact that you, you spend quite a bit of time. Um, you've got publications for sure that are out there and, you know, individuals, I'll put a link in our show notes to your bio, your full bio. We could spend the whole podcast talking about all the things that you've been involved with. But um, 
you know, you've been involved in, in teaching immigration law courses across the country. You've been involved pretty heavily in, in, uh, and, and, you know, in, in various media, um, publications, uh, as you discuss, you know, some of the changes in <laughs> citizenship and immigration and, and refugee issues, which uh, obviously I don't know another area of the law that changes as, as, uh, as much as ours does. So there's lots of opportunities to talk to the media about what, uh, you know, what the governments are, are of the day is trying to do. So Mario for sure is involved with a lot of those things, but I think the most telling, um, for me is, is the fact that, uh, you know, recently for 2016, uh, you were rec- recognized as Lawyer of the Year um, with Best Lawyers, and this is you know one of the peer purely peer-reviewed guides to the legal profession that's out there. And so, it's uh, it's one thing to be recognized by um, you know third parties and clients and people around, and it's another to be recognized by your peers as as one of the uh, you know one of the leaders in in your field. So. I just wanted to give you a little shout out for that. And um, I'm sure Mario was like, <laughs> Mario was probably thinking to himself, all right, Mark, that's enough. You kind of, you're going <laughs> overboard here. But, uh, you know, far too often um, the lawyers that are really doing things the right way and for the right reasons, um, they don't get the same level of, of, of recognition that they probably should. And, and uh, the best you know, recognition in the world is, is for the phone to ring and for people to recognize that the time and effort that's been put into truly becoming, um, a leader in a certain aspect. And so, yeah, so I thought I'd just share that, but I'm done now. (laughs) I'm done. So one of the questions I always start out with, uh, with all of my guests is how you got into immigration in the first place. Well, this is an interesting story. So uh, my background was in criminal law, and I had uh, articled uh, and summered in criminal law, and my intention in law school was to become a criminal lawyer. And I did begin um, my uh, my first year as a criminal lawyer, but during that time, um, uh, uh, someone that I knew quite well, who was a former immigration um, and refugee board member, brought a case to my attention, and it was a couple that had been separated for seven years. It was a, a, a male here in Canada that was sponsoring his wife back home, and they had already gone through one appeal hearing, and it was unsuccessful. And uh, so this was one of my first introductions to a real-life immigration case. I mean, I had studied immigration law in law school. I didn't have the opportunity to work on a uh, pro bono case in law school on immigration matter. I was doing other types of matters, landlord-tenant and, and, and criminal issues. Uh, so here comes this refusal letter, and, and I just want to set this up by saying <laughs> I'm coming from the world of immigration law where everything has to be established by beyond a reasonable doubt, and you obviously are dealing with you know very serious and, and very well-set-out allegations. So I read this refusal letter, and in part, it read that my client was physically incompatible with his wife. <laughs> so to break that down, he just wasn't attractive enough for a very <laughs> attractive wife. And I, at first, I thought, is this some sort of gag? I mean, <laughs> how can this possibly be true? But once I you know, dug into the case and... Uh, met this individual and, and spoke to his, his wife back home and saw the actual pain. There was no question in my mind that this was a genuine relationship. And I thought, my goodness, how could two people possibly be kept apart, 
because of at least this measure, there was other issues that he was divorced and she wasn't, and there were some different educational issues. And I said, "Wow, this is this is almost social engineering. We're trying to determine who should really fall in love, and 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 on that basis, what is what is genuine or not." Anyway, to make a long story short, um, we were successful. It took a lot of work, uh, but. It was after that, I tell you, I just fell in love with immigration law, the impact that that decision had on those people and, and the impact on me. It was just such a such a high that it fueled me with such passion. I mean, I come from immigrant an immigrant background as well, um, as as we all or almost all of us do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 I thought, wow, what an incredible play what incredible job can i can i make a living at this can i do this every day because i love it and um it really took off from there um and i to this day you know 20 years doing this um i have the same passion when i walk into that courtroom or i'm working with someone i really enjoy and what's the trite saying you know if you enjoy what you do you never work a day in your life um i really genuinely feel that way and um it's something that now that I have the privilege to have people um, that I can train, like you know, Mr. Rotenberg did for me, um, you know, I, I share that passion, and 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 I, I always will say to them on you know a fairly regular basis, uh, you know, the day that you lose that passion or you don't think this is what drives you, this is not the profession to be in because the product is human, the results are human, um, and so. Um, you know, that again is what drives us and, uh, it's, it's just been an incredible ride. Wow. You know, Mario, pretty much every single guest that I have come on this podcast shared the same type of a story. You know, we did not get into this practice to, you know, to, to line our pockets with money. This is purely an opportunity to make a real difference in the lives of people and, you know, when I think about my time spent in law school trying to determine which direction I was going to go, you know, the whole world of business and, and corporate finance, and I, I worked a little bit in that area when I was at Gowling's as a, as a summer student, and um, it was so dry and so boring, and I needed human contact. But on the litigation side, it was so contentious, and there was no winners that I didn't find that very appealing. And then, you know, I realized when I had the opportunity to work on the border as an officer that immigration, acting for people, and in those days, at least, it wasn't as adversarial between counsel and immigration. They, you know, we were all kind of on the same team to some extent. Maybe it was my own naive view. But it was, it was being able to make a difference where people are genuinely appreciative of what you do. And I think that fulfillment is what really drives what we do. And, and that, if this, you know, when this podcast is long dead and gone, that is the one message that I want to get out to people who are listening is that immigration lawyers care. And uh, so it's wonderful having people come on and, and share their stories and share their motivations for, for doing this, you know, which at times can be an unbelievably frustrating and, and heart-wrenching practice as well. So, Yeah. Absolutely. Well said. Well, let's, uh, let's jump into our topic here. Um, as we indicated at the onset, uh, when I was doing the initial introductions, um, one of the areas of, of your uh, expertise, I guess, although you know we can't talk about specialization or anything like that, is medical inadmissibility. How does this kind of thing arise? 
like how does it surface and how to you know what are the circumstances when people face this this issue so in its simplest format really is and as individuals mainly for permanent residency but in some cases for temporary residency as well um, we all have to make sure that there's not a danger to the health of Canada to the public safety and place an excessive demand on our health and social services. And what does that mean? Well, that means that when individuals coming to Canada go through their physicals, both the principal applicants and dependents, so family members, we have to, as, as a country, ensure that we're protecting our our citizenship, our, our permanent residents, our social and health services, which as we discussed earlier, it's a finite resource base. <clears throat> we unfortunately, no country can, you know, take on all of the health conditions of the world. It would be crippling. So how it arises, and, and, and interestingly enough, and, I've, and Mark, you've probably come across this as well. I've seen immigration medicals save people's lives. Mm-hmm. They, they were not otherwise going to go to see a doctor or specialist uh, because they were feeling great. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, condition is uncovered through a medical examination, and that's you know obviously a shock, but it's also saved individuals' lives, and 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 then they have to go through the process of ensuring that there is still a fit, a compatibility with Canada. So the, the other the other side of it is there's a real um, emotional and, and um, the visceral reaction to medical uh, inadmissibility findings, especially when it comes to children and children of special needs or differently abled children. Because you'll have individuals coming to Canada that in certain cases are you know, research specialists are going to make an incredible impact in Canada. But then they are told, sorry, we're going to say no because we don't feel your child um, is acceptable to Canada. And that is very difficult for a parent, any parent to hear. And those types of cases, uh, it's like a delicate tapestry. You have to really work to understand and, you know, explain to the client what the system is trying to accomplish, explain what we have to convey to allay the concerns. And, and, you know, a lot of, you know, universal health coverage is a misnomer. Um, there are a lot things that are covered universally, but many are not. Um, and definitely health coverage generally does not transcend borders. This is not a concept that is, um, that, that everyone in, in, in outside of Canada fully understands. Um, so you have to explain things that are covered, social services that are, are not covered, health services that are covered, and what does it mean? And this is an area where, and I think you said it well at the beginning, Mark, it's it's a very complicated area. I know it took me years and years to develop an expertise, and that's with the, you know, the direct mentorship of, of Mr. Rotenberg. So it is an area of law where it's incredibly satisfying because the advocacy, it's at its highest level. Your submissions, your research can be a change. It's a change maker in these people's lives. But on the other side of it, if you're not aware or, or, have, or understand some of the nuances, it can really be 
determinative to the application. And unfortunately, I see some clients that are underrepresented, and I also see clients that go it alone, don't fully understand the system, and then it can become uh, very, very disappointing for everyone involved. Hmm. Wow. Well, I know uh, anyone who's practiced in the area has seen it. It comes up frequently. And um, maybe you can explain just a little bit about uh, kind of the, the flow, how things arise. So, so a person files an application. They reach the stage where they start to ask for police clearances and the other background information. They complete their immigration medical. You know, those results are transmitted electronically to the government. And then something happens. So how does it, how does this issue come up? So how does so the government sh- deal with it? So you, to get your medical examination, you're sent to, to a person that's a doctor that's called a designated medical practitioner. And what ends up happening there is if they find a condition that's of concern, it's usually noted at that examination. And then it's furthered and it's usually, and it's furthered to another medical officer than to Assess, assess the individual. Sometimes uh, clients are sent to specialists to determine the full extent of the issue. And after that, um, if the government feels that uh, the, the present threshold is about $6,600 a year, $6,655 to be accurate, if they feel an individual is going to cost over that amount or add to waiting lists or morbidity and some of these more complicated issues in terms of wait time and you know negative impact on the Canadian health system, they can deem you in excessive demand. So leaving aside the two other categories of danger to public health, danger to the public, those are tend to be uh, very few cases that 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 really come through the system. Excessive demand is the one that. Um, is most common and and common that's still less than one percent of all the hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of people that go through so we're still dealing with you know thousands we're not dealing with hundreds of thousands of individuals so we should properly um, provide that context but so if an individual is likely to cost over sixty six hundred dollars per year over a five-year forward-looking projection um, or potentially for certain chronic conditions, 10 years, they could be deemed medically inadmissible to Canada. But the big catch is that it's not just the one person that's medically inadmissible. In most cases, it's the entire family. Hmm. And that's what is very, uh, at times, uh, people cannot understand that it would apply to everyone. Well, can I just leave this, you know, my, uh, this person is fine back home, otherwise cared for by other relatives. No, it is considered a family unit. And all of those individuals must meet these requirements. And if they do not, they are deemed medically inadmissible. So what happens after that is there's something that's what's called a procedural fairness letter. Now, Mr. Rotenberg can be directly attributed with the creation of a procedural fairness letter in Canadian immigration law. This was through his years, and and, and Mr. Rotenberg goes back to the 50s, Mm -hmm. that developed a procedural fairness letter, which means here's what we think. Here's why we believe you are over $6,600 a year or um, are going to add to waiting lists or other issues. And here's your response in 30 days to tell us why we are wrong. If we are not wrong, then you're inadmissible. If we are wrong, we're, we're happy to reconsider. And so they'll ask clients at that point, 
to create what are called mitigation plans. Can they offset these costs? Um, and 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 they'll be asked to sign ability and intent forms. And this this emanates directly from Hillowitz. Do they have the ability and the intention to offset these costs? And you know the type of costs. So should be clear. You know they're they're health services in Canada um, that are funded usually means, and it's the majority of the funding, family physicians, medical specialists, nurses, chiropractors, and physiotherapists, laboratory services, pharmaceuticals in a hospital setting. Those are traditional health services. And those health services are those that are medically required services to be rendered by medical practitioners. So, and the internet, and then the other uh, interesting nuance this entire thing is that immigration is federally regulated, but health coverage is provincially mandated. And provinces may cover services beyond those specified in the Canadian Health Act. And that includes, as I, I mentioned, you know, prescription drug coverage, vision care, chiropractic care. But the important thing about universal, the, the services that are covered universally, there are no deductibles, there are no co-payments, there are no dollar limits for covered services. Then you get into the world of social services, and social services are things like home care, specialized residence and resident, residential services, special education, um, social and vocational rehab, personal support services, and the provision of devices related to those services. So those all can in, in most cases have no deductibles, co-payments. Um, so you have a different system there that some of that can be privately funded. And so, it gets so Mari, if I, if I jump in yep. just for one quick second, yep. just, just for the listeners. So a practical example on, on the, on the side of social services, and this is something that many people don't realize is if your child is in school and maybe your child needs an aid because of, you know, whatever, whatever reason, those are direct costs for the, the, the hiring and employment of that aid that would go against this, this dollar figure you're talking about. Exactly. That is a, that, and, and that is a common expense. And a lot of individuals will, will write in response to procedural fairness letter. Um, I'm happy to cover my child's expenses for, for schooling but don't indicate or don't source out a private school for that purpose. So mm -hmm. they believe that through the universal uh, and public system that they can somehow cut away the costs and then that's just not permitted. So that I've seen refusals and there's been high profile cases that, that, uh, that have unfortunately because a couple didn't understand that they couldn't mitigate pub public schooling, they were refused even though they had the ability and had privately schooled their child in their home country. And, and so it, it becomes a very nuanced area because what up happens, for example, drug coverage. So individuals that need certain drug therapy uh, for diabetes, you know, you can imagine the condition, yeah. multiple sclerosis, all of these conditions. If these drugs are administered in a hospital context, they fall under health services and are universally covered. And therefore, you cannot pay for yourself, cannot the deductibles or co-payment, none of that. But if it's administered outside of a hospital, then it becomes a social service. And then that you can contribute to. Hmm. And then the other, the other nuance is you're dealing with several provincial jurisdictions, which all have their different drug 
regimes, what is covered, what is not covered, uh, medical services that are covered, not covered in certain cases. Um, so this is why province of destination, um, understanding what your condition would actually require. And then we're asking medical practitioners to do something that they are not accustomed to doing, which is tell me how I'm going to be feeling in five years. Mm -hmm. And medical, and that's very complicated for doctors to do because they are used to dealing with the here and now. And, uh, I mean, this will get into some of the tips that we can discuss uh, in, in a moment, Mark, but those are the types of issues that have to be addressed in your response. You're not just dealing with the here and now, and that's a common mistake. Wow. Okay. Well, you've kind of highlighted one of the things and one of the focuses that we wanted to, to accomplish with this podcast, and that was to give people just some some ideas and put some thoughts in their mind uh, to help them understand some of the more common ways that these medical assessments and actually in responding to the fairness letter, which is really the, you know, the, the, the meat of what we as immigration lawyers do, but in responding and in dealing with this issue, once it's been triggered, um, just you're, we're going to go through here. And I think we've got maybe about five different things that we're going to offer the, the listeners, but ways in which you can help to, to try and prevent, um, you know, things going sideways, essentially when, when you're dealing with this, uh, this allegation of medical inadmissibility. Now, right off the top, when I hear you talking about all of this, you know, all of these different factors, the, this interplay between provincial and federal law and what's covered, what isn't, all of these assessments, you know, how much time do they give you to provide this in that fairness letter? Usually they provide um, 30 to 60 days. Okay, so obviously that is going, you're going to be pretty hard pressed to be able to accomplish this in that period of time. So first, first question, what do you do if you don't have enough time? So this is our, uh, we should, we should have a drum roll here, Mark, but <laughs> this one. would be number five, yes, <laughs> number one or number five on the list counting yes. down is one of the most uh, issues that I see as a preventable medical refusal is when either unrepresented applicants or underrepresented applicants fail to request an extension where, and, and in most cases it's necessary to file comprehensive submission and the supporting evidence. And, and that's, you know, from third parties. It could be a physiotherapist. It could be a psychologist. It could be a specialist. Um, so, so many cases where a more detailed and responsive report, as one example, could have spelled the difference. And, but in a lot of cases, there's a rush. They feel that they can't ask. And I have to tell you, in my experience, 99% of the time, that extension will be granted because it's only reasonable considering the types of issues we're dealing with here. So that would be number five or okay. number one. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll go. I like that. Okay. So basically what you're saying is you don't have to feel forced to, to, to rush and, and put everything you can together and, and maybe possibly leave something out because you don't have enough time to get it in. So just to clarify, you're, you're saying that, it, that almost invariably uh, there's always going to be an option or an availability to extend that time. And, and for as much as, you know, as reasonably practical in the circumstances, given the, the, the you know, the consequences of, of what's happening here. Absolutely. And here's the real kicker. If you do not ask, 
and then later um, you go to an immigration lawyer and try to say, well, if I knew I would have asked and this and that, the law is not going to be on your side. Uh, wow. So okay. it's critical that you ask at this point. Gotcha. Okay, so that's five. Okay, n- tip number four. Now, the, the, the heading that you've given me here, submissions and evidence do not address the legal timeline. So what do you mean by that? What is this legal timeline? So the legal timeline is where, what is your condition going to cost or uh, impact Canadian health and social services over a five to 10 year period? So the test is not a lifetime. And in Australia, if you can believe it, the test is 30 years. Oh my. To establish where your condition would go over a 30 year time period. But common mistake here, and I, I, I mentioned it earlier, is that the focus is on now. I'm feeling great right now. Here's where I'm at right now. No problem. I'm good. And that's just not the legal test. The legal test is, well, you have this condition or you have this need. Um, so let's use a very simple example. Uh, yeah, I might need a knee replacement in two years, mm-hmm. but right now I'm good. Mm-hmm. It's not, if you need a knee replacement in the next five years, that becomes a relevant consideration and has to be addressed according to the legal timeline. So I'll receive emails. Here's the condition. Um, here's how they're doing right now. What do you think? Again, doesn't help me because we need to look at the five to 10 year period. And there is enough medical data out there. Um, and uh, for, for, for uh, you know, for an individual to put together a good mitigation plan, I think that's a reasonable period of time. Ten years with chronic conditions can be challenging at times. I couldn't imagine speaking to 30 years. Yeah. Uh, but five to ten years is, uh, I think, a reasonable time. And it, and it does build in some good protection for the government. And, and you know, another example, someone... Um, you know, there's this there's this belief out there that you know you have to be five year cancer free to be able to uh, still be medically admissible to Canada, mm-hmm. and the answer is yes and no. Um, for certain cancers, after a few years, you have a very low chance of uh, of the cancer returning, whereas in certain cancers, um, five years may not be enough of a window. So it really depends on, on, on the, again, going back to Hillowitz, the individualized circumstances. But for purposes of point four, you have to address the legal timeline. Now, this may or may not take us into a different discussion, but how, um, how likely is it to be able to actually challenge the, the diagnosis? So if, if they say, so, I need, let's take a knee replacement, you know, you know, the, the, you get, you obtain your immigration medical and, um, and then the letter that comes back says, it looks like you're going to need a knee replacement within the next five years. And so can you, can you challenge that? So you can challenge, uh, the diagnosis or potentially, uh, the remedy to the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So if you have an individual who, um, is very active or has a certain occupation that requires, uh, you know, using the knee example, um, uh, requires credible stress on the knee. So somebody's knee who might otherwise last another five to 10 years with this similar type of knee, knee impairment, 
you have an individual who's now working in this particular context, which is a high stress area, their knee may last two years compared to someone lasting 10 years. Yeah, we'll see a, so car- if your we'll client, see a carpet installer. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Uh, or a back catcher. <laughs> there you go. Um, there you go, to use a sports analogy. Yes. So the answer is yes. And a knee replacement um, is one example where um, usually the it is fairly easy to to get a sense of the progression. So unless you have an extreme on one end or the other in terms of activity, um, you usually can settle on a, on, a, on a fair diagnosis. Where it becomes more challenging is in spectrum disorders. Mm. Um, so you take a syndrome, uh, you know, let's say a Turner syndrome in a child. Um, there you have a situation where you might have very, very little impact from the syndrome. Whereas this another child will have severe impact um, and have all kinds of medical issues flowing from that syndrome. So there it can be an issue of, well, first of all, it's degree. So does the child have a syndrome? Has there been genetic testing? Yes, there has. There's the outcome. In other cases, you're dealing with, well, is it autism? Is it something else? Where on that spectrum do they find? So you're even you're even challenging, if not the, the name of the condition, you're challenging where your client may be along that spectrum. Wow. And that can be critical to the types of, uh, you know, outcomes for the client and their actual health and social needs in Canada. Huh. So legal timeline, you know, tip number four, you have to pay attention to it and know the case that you have to meet. And we actually are going to get into that, that case a little bit later here in our tips. You talked previously, and this is our number three, about the importance of properly researching and understanding the interplay between the federal and the provincial delivery of health and social services in the country. So we talked a little bit about that and how, how there, uh, you, know, you need to take into consideration that there's different costs in different provinces. And, and, but you also uh, wanted to add in here the, the, the interaction between private versus public coverage. So... Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so someone can, uh, for example, let's use a simple example. Someone can get vocational therapy or see a chiropractor, and that can be an extended health service that is covered. Um, But you also can get that privately and source that out privately. Or let's say a personal support worker for someone Mm -hmm. who's ill in your family. All of these have different, um, they have the public and the private spectrum to this. So how do you deal with that? Well, then it becomes an issue of what is the family's ability and intention. So there's a financial ability. There's also what is their intention to support these services? Because everyone thinks, oh, well, sometimes it just comes down to money. It doesn't come down to money. It's a very important multi-tiered approach. So if you're going to, for example, have therapy at home, well, so somebody has to be at home who's supporting the person with the condition. Then there's the funding aspect. So there's all kinds who's coordinating. Have you have you reached an agreement? And, and you know, this all has to be done in the mitigation plan. You have to source out these individuals ahead of time. Say this is the type of service we're going to use. Here's who we're going to use. Here's the cost. Here's our financial ability. Here's our time ability. I work from this point of the day to that point of the day so I can be there to help that that occur. Or in some cases, um, individuals may want to homeschool their child 
and that would mitigate, for example, public education for their child. So they've they've holds they're going to homeschool. So then they have to qualify in terms of the curriculum, be accredited to do certain aspects of it. So there's all kinds of creative ways that you move from the public to the private. And this is not about trying to skirt around the excessive demand. And I want to highlight that because the clients that we're dealing with are looking for the best care for their family members. And that best care can sometimes and oftentimes be driven by the family privately. And one of the one of the points that was, I think, that was astutely mentioned in Hillowitz is, well, you know, greatest predictor of someone's future comportment is what have they done in the past. So if you have a family that in their home country or the country that they, they were living in before coming to Canada had arranged for private services for their family member and were doing all of these things privately to, to really maximize the care there is a very good chance they're going to do the same in Canada and want to continue to do the same in Canada. They don't want to disrupt that. Another example, drug coverage. There might be a very expensive drug that a client is on in their home country. They can come to Canada and get it covered, but it would be the generic version of, let's say, that same drug. But there could be health consequences to going from the higher-end drug to this generic form. So they have no desire to be publicly funded for the generic drug because it's in their best interest to remain on the private prescription, hmm. as a couple of examples. Well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so obviously this whole area has uh, an element of, of uh, legality to it. There are actual provisions within the Act, and so one of the questions that has to be taken into consideration, or at least one of the factors, is applying, which is number two for us, applying the right legal test. Can you talk about that test a little bit? So the test there is what is reasonably, probably going to occur over the next five to ten years, not what is remote, you know, what could happen in every conceivable scenario. And this was also addressed and, and established in Hillowitz. So what we're looking at is what's probably going to happen on a balance. Um, this family uh, has this type of lifestyle. This is what they've done in the past. So it's probable that they're going to continue to do that. It would be remote that they would suddenly come to Canada, move their child out of all the private schooling, um, and and put this child now in public education and just kind of do away with that responsibility. It's also remote that a family that has done well financially for years is suddenly going to come to Canada and find themselves bankrupt. And that was one of the scenarios that the government put before the court in Hillowitz because Hillowitz was someone of means. Dijon was actually from a, uh, from its own community that, that it was not not about wealth was about the community taking care of the child. But with respect to Hillowitz, it was like, well, yes, he's very successful now, but what if he loses all his money when he comes to Canada and then can't do all of these things? And the court said, look, this has to be possible. Uh, sorry, it has to be probable, not possible. Mm -hmm. So I think in that context, when a procedural fairness letter um, that is sent to an applicant is not probable, that they're starting to get into remote areas. That's an area of attack. 
and 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 it's and it's not defensible in law or when a procedural fairness letter doesn't really address sometimes it's it's become a lot better now they have what's called a central centralized medical admissibility unit cmal in ottawa and the procedural fairness letters are getting better and better every day but there was times when someone was destined from ontario but the officer relied on uh, mm. data let's say from alberta uh incredibly or they don't give any costing at all so you don't even know what their concerns are they just say well this person's going to need this residential care they're going to need vocational therapy they're going to need speech therapy all of these things um, again what is possible and and sometimes a procedural fairness letter will put applicants in three lines of care all at the same time meaning that they would be receiving full-time therapy across the board in three separate areas which is temporally impossible, impossible. Huh. right so again what's probable and not what's possible okay so let's flip that around so you have a family that maybe they, they they're not of of significant financial means they come to canada maybe the principal um you know the principal applicant uh, comes as a foreign worker and the family come and he's working as a food service supervisor in a in a fast food franchise and they have a child you know, that, that is, they receive a fairness letter about the, you know, the medical and admissibility issue. Um, how much do they look at, you know, this, this family's ability um, in the future to, to actually earn enough money to support whatever this, we'll say social service that this, this child is potentially going to need to access? Is it, you know, how difficult of a burden is it to show, look, I expect my employment to increase. I expect that, you know, that, uh, you know, that we will have uh, increasing um, access to the dollars we need to privately take care of some of these issues that are addressed in that fairness letter. Um, you know, I guess it goes both ways. Absolutely. And I, and I think what you're looking at there is you're looking at a, a slew of possibilities. So, the part of it is a mathematical equation. Someone is earning $40,000 a year, and this therapy costs $10,000 a year. So it's a function of how do you get there. So sometimes there will be the private services we were talking about. Other times, some of these services will be delivered by religious communities for free that are not government-funded because part of the legal test is that the majority of the funding is coming from the government. So there can be... A, a contribution from the government up to a certain point, as long as it's not excessive, that you can offset. So you can hyphen off certain things. The government can help in this this uh, in one way. A community service might help in another way that's not government funded. And then the family can contribute the, the balance. So you can look at different factors and different mm -hmm. combinations to make it work for individuals that may not have the full means at times to do things. You know, and Mario, that that answer just reaffirms for myself, and and I think any listeners, uh, whether they're actually uh, practitioners in this area or individuals who are faced with this issue and have stumbled across this podcast, th that un what you've just said there underlines how truly complicated and complex this process can can be. It's not just a simple matter of of, of just writing up a nice little plan um but but you you cannot underscore uh the importance of of you know this is people's lives that you're dealing with this is their ability to fulfill their dream of coming to canada 
And so, uh, you know, one of the things before we get to our last point here, I want to reiterate how important it is to, to take the time to engage counsel that knows what they're doing. And, you know, with some of these complicated things, you know, when it comes to medical inadmissibility issue, I do not touch that area at all. I refer them to you. You know, the, the, the reality is this area just, it, it, it cries out for someone that has experience that can anticipate. There's so much of a, of, of, you know, a future projection to this that without that background and experience and understanding the direction that the government takes with this, it can, you know, you, it could be the difference between people being able to fulfill their dream of being in Canada or not. And, um, and some people may say, well, that's kind of self-serving. You immigration lawyers are, are always trying to justify your existence. But I don't think anyone would disagree with the reality that this area is far too complicated for just even a regular, you know, immigration lawyer just to pick up and start dabbling in. So uh, this insight has been just, just exceptional. Um, number one. So this is the last one. Does the applicant know the case to be met? Talk about that one. This is by far the most complicated uh, point on our list. And, and it touches upon a lot of the things that we've already discussed. But what it really boils down to is you first have to understand our delivery model in Canada, which we've spoken about between the federal government, provincial, the Canadian Health Act, essential, non-essential services, prescription drugs in hospital, not in hospital. So you have to look at that procedural fairness letter and say, does the letter properly qualify the demand? Does it distinguish between health and social costs? Eligibility and actual need are critical points to address. Um, Is the procedural uh, information being relied on, procedural information being relied upon outdated or is it inapplicable? is the medical officer qualified to render that opinion? There will be times in that it will be a, a family doctor that is commenting on a very specialized condition where you wouldn't perhaps need a pediatric oncologist or a nephrologist in different cases. So you even have to look behind the decision maker sometimes. So a number of probing questions have to be asked before you embark upon your your strategy and you mentioned uh, mark about how complicated this area is it's legally complicated and it's actually very complicated just by the pace at which the world thankfully for all of our health of medicine is changing there are certain conditions that when i started many years ago that were lifelong chronic conditions and now there are certain drug regimes you can take for 12 weeks that can cure you of certain conditions, but, you know, uh, so there, there's all different types of therapies. When we began this, leukemia for children was so challenging, and now, for the most part, a lot of it is beatable. It's amazing where, just in my years involved in this, how much more we can offer to clients because of where uh, technology has come, how far um, the ability to be creative and to advocate and understand the right questions. Um, you know, there's always this question of, well, how do we know that people are abiding by these plans and how do we know we're protecting our system? The answer to that is we don't fully know. But for the most part, 
it's been my experience with the many clients that I've dealt with, these plans are not just about immigrating to Canada, it's about their wellness. And I think, again, if there's another message that can be taken away from this podcast, it's that this is so much more than just emigrating to Canada for many of these people. This is about how they can properly position their lives for maybe the health of a, of a child or the development of a child, the maintenance of a child that might have special needs um, or differently abled, to make sure that individuals um, that are very ill um, make sure that they, for example, are are fully apprised of what it would mean to come to Canada and it's in their best interest. Certain times, once that we get into this process, we realize it's not in the best interest to immigrate, but not from an immigration standpoint, but from a health standpoint. So a lot of good things come from this process and I think it is a good system. I think we are uh, protecting uh, as best we can our finite base. It's, it, it's a good model. And so I'm a proponent of it because I think it works um, and I think it's become more fair. It doesn't mean that it's a perfect system, but I think we've come a long way um, since Hillowitz, for example, 12 years ago. Very cool. <clears throat> well, I'm going to make sure that I put a link to the Hillowitz decision and, uh, you know, if there are any other uh, resources, um, if you've, you know, written or, you know, uh, some, of the, some of the publications that you have uh, been involved in, um, we'll make sure we put links uh, to that for individuals who are looking for more information. But um, at the end of the day, uh, as, as I tell most of my clients uh, that come to me that face these issues, um, I recommend you speak with Mario. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what is the best way for people to reach you when they you know, have the unfortunate experience of, of receiving a, a fairness letter related to medical admissibility? And they've got this 30 you know, to 60 day timeline to respond. I need to talk to Mario. How, how can they reach you? So they can reach me at info at Bellissimo Law Group, which is a mouthful I know. Uh, that's B-E-L-L-I-S-S-I-M-O lawgroup.com, all one word. They can call us at one 787 8850 or locally at 416-787-6505. Perfect. And I'll make sure that I put links back to all of that uh, contact information within the show notes of the podcast. Well, thank you very, very much, Mario. I really appreciate this. And I know that uh, it's an area that you know, not a lot of immigration lawyers who practice exclusively in the area uh, know a lot about and so for you to take the time to, to provide a little bit of insight. And uh, uh, I really, yeah, I really appreciate that. So thanks so much. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and um, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm definitely um, supportive of the, of the podcast that you're doing. I think it's a great public service and important for individuals to see the many sides of immigration law and, and the immigration lawyers behind it. Much appreciated. All right. Take care, Mario. Thank you, Mark. Well, that was, as always, phenomenal. And, um, you know, Mario gave me just a lot of inspiration to see what more I can do locally here uh, for some of the immigrant um, 
settlement agencies that uh, that are that are here in Alberta, and also encourage uh, fellow colleagues. Um, I want to extend an invitation to all of you to get more involved in pro bono work, and especially in ways that really make a difference for for people. Um, as we discussed in the podcast um, in the interview that I had with Mario. Um, far too often the average person just does not appreciate, at least within the ranks of us awesome immigration uh, lawyers, the extent to which we do give back. And, um, you know, the the uh, different pro bono initiatives that Mario has, especially with the Sick Kids Hospital uh, in Toronto, is just phenomenal. And uh, it's it's just inspiring. And so whenever I get guests on like that, that are just so dynamic, that are doing things the right way that are are practicing at the highest levels um, within our bar and are also taking the time to help those less fortunate in meaningful ways, not just to, you know, to, to self-promote themselves, but to genuinely make a difference for people. Now that's inspiring. Um, as we, as we talked about the different, uh, the different things that Mario shared in the interview, um, it's pretty easy to see, like I said, how important it is to consider engaging uh, someone who knows what they're doing. And I refer my work to Mario um, on occasion if there's someone, uh, you know, if the issue is not super, super complicated. Uh, I've got some good good friends in, in Calgary that I refute these matters to. But generally speaking, Mario writes the book on the topic and you would never go wrong reaching out to him um, and engaging him and his firm. Because like he, like he pointed out, uh, you know, when he, when he started uh, the practice, he was mentored and uh, he worked his way through, uh, you know, through a lot of uh, uh, hours and hours and, and, you know, years literally of training to, to reach the level that he's at now. And he really is at the top when it comes to this area of immigration. And now he's in the process of mentoring, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the other associates and in, in, in his firm. So that, that nature of passing on that knowledge and legacy is, is awesome. So uh, you, the contact information, we'll put that in the uh, show notes for the podcast. And I also want to encourage all of you um, who are listening to the podcast to go to iTunes and leave a, a review for me. Uh, I know I always ask for this, but it really helps to raise the profile of the podcast. And uh, obviously with the millions of dollars that I get to host the podcast... I'm just joking. <laughs> I wish I was getting millions of dollars, but it, it's so much fun at this stage. It isn't work. And as, as Mario alluded to, um, yeah, when, <clears throat> when what you're doing is, is fun, it really isn't work. And that's how I feel about this podcast. I love it. I love bringing on the guests. I love learning myself. Um, I love hearing the stories and uh, just knowing that, you know, that we're kind of all in this together. And so uh, we're excited to see some of the new changes that are that are coming uh, from the government. Um, I'm, you know, my practice is focusing more and more on uh, on business immigration, which is the area that I I love the most. Um, but there's going to be some interesting changes that are coming, so stay tuned. We'll probably have some podcasts on those areas, and uh, I've got a great lineup of guests that are coming. I apologize for the the gap that we've had in this. Uh, in, in releasing episodes, um, I've been trying to get my feet underneath me here at Stringham. Um, it's slowly happening, but it's taking a little bit more time. So we'll try to push out some more podcasts and uh, keep them coming. If you have any ideas for topics uh, or or if you have ideas for guests that I could invite, please don't hesitate to reach out to me and let me know. 
Um, my email address is mholthe at stringham.ca now. That's uh, M-H-O-L-T-H-E at S-T-R-I-N-G-A-M dot C-A. So without further ado, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. This one was a little bit longer, but I hope it was totally worth your, uh, worth your time. Um, as always, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, it's, it's for you that I do the podcast and uh, I wish you all the best as you continue to navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Oh, Canada, greatest country in the world. We want to share the richness of your soil. This place I Canadian Immigration Podcast